Welcome, everyone. This is Mac on the Rock, WSQF 94.5 for our Statues and Stories Hour with Adam Levinson. We're going to be tuning in right now, and we're going to talk about executive orders. Adam, can you hear me just fine? I can hear you great. How are you, Mac on the Rock? I'm here. You know, I feel like Mac on a pebble now that I've been humbled by Joseph Biden and his executive orders. And uh, so it's a fitting conversation for today here on Blink Radio 94.5 Key Biscayne. And uh, it's what I just learned was that FDR dusted everybody with thousand executive orders. So what are we complaining about Biden 17 in the first days, I guess? So, so Biden is up to 25, but we're going to cover a lot of territory tonight. And, um, you know, this is an issue that relates back to George Washington and you know, executive orders can be very good. They can be very controversial. So we're going to cover a lot of territory. And if we still have material to talk about, then we may continue this next week. So let me give a heads up to everybody. Uh, do you want to announce the uh, the name of the show, Manny? Well, I already gave like a, a, an impromptu announcement. We're going to talk about executive orders. And we promise not to complain about Biden's executive orders uh, on employing so many thousands of people. And I guess that would be the top, that would be the title today, or unless you want to give it another name. Sure. So this is the Statutes and Stories Hour, and uh, you know, at, at the end of the hour, maybe I we'll already talk said that. Okay. All right. I so, said uh, Statutes and Stories right off the gambit. There you go. So uh, Statutes and Stories is we're talking about historically, or usually we talk about statutes, but tonight we're making a little bit of a departure. So we're talking about not laws, not statutes, but we're talking about executive orders. And here I'm going to make a, a snide remark. There was an advisor to President Clinton who had a nice little quote that I'm going to use. And he referred to executive orders this way by saying, stroke of the pen, law of the land, how cool. Right? So uh, we'll, we'll talk about what an executive order is. It's not Adam, a statute, that was, but that was kind of lame. Okay. <laughs> that was Paul Begala. So we're also Jeez. Should have no- I should have known. My God, Paul, another lame guy. All right. How how cool. Okay, go for it. We're going to cover some sports. We're going to talk about the Preakness Sticks. And I think ahead, no one will be able to figure this out. But I'm going to connect executive orders on the Preakness Sticks. Yeah, that sounds like like an Andrew Jackson uh, executive order because he was a horse racer. Anyway, all right. Actually, that's a good way of looking at it, but we shall see. Uh, We're also going to talk. It's Black History Month, so we'll talk about a little bit of Black History. It's February. And, of course, we always like to talk about the Constitution. And we don't have any statutes tonight. We have executive orders. And you're right. The reason why we've chosen to talk about executive orders tonight is because whenever a new president comes in, if you like him, you like his executive orders. If you don't like him or her, then you don't like their executive orders. But uh, you know, Well, I, I, I beg your pardon because I must have been you know, befriended or defriended on Facebook by all my Biden supporters because none of them have— Con on my wall to say how wonderful these executive orders are. So I think most Democrats are kind of taken aback by these executive orders, especially the the executive orders related to energy. I think that's uh, you know, energy independence is very important when you think about the world we live in today and canning something that that uh, obligates us to move this type of energy through the railroad uh, that obviously is owned by Warren Buffett, who supported Biden for president. Uh, caveat it makes it well, you go from a safe pipeline and uh you know environmentally to an unsafe railroad car doesn't make any sense to me but anyway so i will give you counter arguments to that later if we have time and 
you know, ultimately, without going into the details of Biden, you know, he's thinking long-term and energy independence as opposed to short-term. But, uh, again, we can talk about that later. So we're talking about the history of executive orders, and uh, we go back to just putting everybody in the right setting, 1789. Why is 1789 the date we're going to start with? Because 1789, it is April 30th of 1789 that George Washington is inaugurated as the first president, and uh, the background was, of course, we had the Articles of Confederation. And under the Articles of Confederation, and before I get into details, let me remind everybody, you can go to the website. There are two places you can go. You can listen to us live if that's what you're doing. You can go to the WSQF web- website and you can listen to the podcasts, which are saved. Or you could go to statutesandstories.com, which is the website where we post these stories and we, we give links to all kinds of primary sources so you can follow along with the post that was just put on this weekend about executive orders. In fact, we're talking mainly about George Washington's first executive orders. So remember. Now, let me interrupt you quickly so that those who are listening, you know, on the internet, WSQFradio.com, this program will always be live streamed there, live, WSQFradio.com. And then tomorrow, though, it'll be uploaded as a podcast. Fantastic. So when Washington comes in, remember the background. And after the Revolutionary War, we worked under the Articles of Confederation, and we had what would be referred to as the Confederation Congress, which is very weak. The states were basically doing their own thing. Well, they had their own treaties with Britain. <laughs> I noticed that when I, when I read your, your post. Uh, and they were also having tariffs against each other, which not, that, wasn't, that wasn't cool, considering we were a nation you know, uh, in, our, in our infancy. I didn't realize that the founders of this great nation— didn't spell out right away that these 13 states are not to uh, tariff each other, because then what's the whole reason for the revolution, you know? <laughs> so that's a great example. I think it's one of the best examples. So some of the problems, just setting the background for Washington, during the Articles period was you had the uh, Shays Rebellion, so farmers in Massachusetts were taking the law into their own hand. They didn't want to pay taxes and rebelling. Uh, that was a, a big problem that motivated the writing of the Constitution. But another economic example you gave had to do with tariffs. So the states in the, in the Northeast, of Maryland, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, imposed restrictions on British trade in the hope of getting concessions out of Parliament. So what does Connecticut do? Connecticut decides, and I'll be careful with my language because we're on the radio, Connecticut says, I don't care about Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. We're going to open up our markets and our ports to Britain, and we're going to impose tariffs on Massachusetts. So you had different states right each other's necks. And that was not a good situation from the standpoint of having a single cohesive country. So that's the background. Washington comes in as the first president. He's a nationalist, along with Hamilton and others that we'll talk about tonight, John Jay, Madison. And, uh, you know, they're interested in, in making the federal union a union which stands by that name, not a perpetual union, which is what it was called under the article. So uh, that's the background. Washington comes in. So what is his first executive order? And we'll also talk about what's his authority to do this. So the first Congress began, and they had not yet established the different departments, and they would eventually create the Department of War, they would create the Treasury Department, and they would create the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs, Treasury, and War. But they hadn't done that yet. That would take a couple months. So in the meantime, what does Washington do within his first two months? And the answer is on, let's see, the date, and I've got links. If anyone wants to follow along, you can look at the links. On June, in early June, he does the first executive order, June 8th of 1789. And you know, we could debate, do we want to call this an executive order? Do we want to call it a polite request? Right? But most historians, they refer to it because back then they didn't have the terminology. They didn't use executive orders to describe it. So we're calling it an executive order. So what does it do? He sends a letter on June 8th 
to the agencies or the departments that carried over from the articles because we hadn't yet created the new Treasury Department. We hadn't created the new Department of War. So you know, he had asked the prior leaders of those departments, which were in many cases members of the Confederation Congress, to hang on, to stay on until the new government got put in place. So he sends this letter on June 8th. Uh, the one that I give a link to is to John Jay and I give some of the others. And, and I'll read you from the letter. And he describes how you know, I'm the new president. It's you now we have an unsettled, this is a quote, state of the executive department under the new constitution. And he explains that he's desirous, quote, of employing myself and obtaining an acquaintance with the real situation of the several great departments that we just mentioned at the period of my acceding to the administration of the general government. And notice he doesn't call it the federal government. He calls it the general government with G in capital, in the general government. And then he goes through a wish. This is his wish. He says, for this purpose, I wish, he's very polite, to receive in writing such a clear account of the department at the head of which you have been, as may be sufficient without overburdening or confusing a mind, which is very many objects, so he's, he's sort of been, you know, being polite and uh, being respectful. Uh, and also he's, uh, you know, he's somewhat of a humble guy. So he's saying, without overburdening or confusing my mind, you know, please impress me with a full and precise General idea of the United States as they may be comprehended in connection with your department. So Washington makes that request, and he sends it sent in triplicate to those different agencies, and then another copy is sent to the post office because that continued over from the Articles of Confederate also. So what, what then happens the next day, and I've got a link and I've got pictures. So if you wanted to see from Washington's letter book, because kids like looking at the pictures, I think everybody likes looking at the pictures. So you can see, and what is a letter book? Back then, because they didn't have the Internet, and we smile. But uh, Washington and, and the wealthy founders, people who had means, would not only send a letter out, they would keep a separate copy of it in a book so they would know what they said in all their prior letters. And when someone sent you a letter back, you could match up the letter that they were responding to to the letter you sent, or et cetera. And, uh, you know, you'd have a good conversation by looking at the letters. That's how you keep track. And that's what clerks would do. Clerks would write the letter that goes out or duplicates. And uh, you would keep a copy of the letter you sent, so you had your outgoing letters and you had your incoming letters. So, long story short, I've got a link to the, the letter of uh, June 9th, and the uh, one was sent, as we said. They didn't call it the Treasury Department yet. They called it the Board of Treasury, which was actually three members. And there were controversies with that board really not being able to accomplish anything because under the Articles, there was very limited power. Under the Articles of Confederation, uh, of course, when Hamilton comes in as the new Secretary of Treasury, when the Treasury Department is created, and he has a lot more authority, and he hits the ground running with, with some of his proposals that we've talked about on other nights. All right, so on June 9th, the next day, a letter is returned to Washington from the Board of Trade, and I quote from that letter, and the three-member Board of Trade says to, to Washington, I'm quoting, it will require some days to make out the necessary documents to which such an account must be necessary to refer and uh, they describe how they're honored to receive Washington's letter. And basically, they say, we're going to need a couple, a couple days and a little bit of time to, to organize everything. And it takes them several days, and they write, write back multiple reports explaining what the status was with the Treasury, in other words, how broke they were. Right? Uh, yeah, how flimsy. Was, and, of course, uh, the, the honor to be addressed by Washington, too. There was yeah. some of that, the cordiality of feeling important because the president asked them, hey, send me a report. Let me know what you guys are going to be doing. And, Manny, that's one of the reasons why I love the primary sources, because you can actually read the words of Washington and the responses. And, you know, in many cases, they're very polite, very respectful, and sometimes you can see when they're not being so polite. So uh, Henry Knox, he was the, the Secretary of War under the Articles, and he actually stays over. They keep him 
he gets re-chosen or re-nominated to be the Secretary of War under the federal government. Uh, and he's a very close friend of Washington and Hamilton. So we've got links to Henry, the letter to Henry Knox and the response to Henry Knox. And I give some of the timeline that the new cabinet secretaries would not be appointed until later in the year after legislating creating the departments was adopted. And then John Jay, who was the Secretary of State under the Articles during this later period, because the Articles had several different Secretaries of State, but Jay was at the very end of the Article period. And interestingly, John Jay from New York was chosen not to be the Secretary of State. He was appointed by Washington to be the first Chief Justice. So having been the, the Secretary of State, he becomes the Chief Justice. So Jay writes back. I've got a link so people can read Jay's response. And, and you know, most of the listeners may remember who becomes the first Secretary of State under the new federal administration. John Jay. And, uh, um, so Jay becomes the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and uh, he comes back from France, and uh, he becomes the third president, and he's sort of a rival of Hamilton. Uh, so you've got the Hamilton becomes Secretary of Treasury, Jefferson becomes the Secretary of State, and as we said, Henry Knox is the Secretary of War. And um, we also have links so you can read about the act which created the War Department. And the three members, by the way, who had been on the Treasury Department or the Board of Treasury, or these are names most people won't remember, Samuel Osgood, Walter Livingston, and he's from a very famous New York family, and Arthur Lee from Virginia. So often they would split up with these different departments or boards, regional representation. So Livingston from New York, Arthur Lee from Virginia, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure where Osgood was from. from. So that was the first executive order, which was a request by Washington to have these these heads give him the status of a different agency. So there's nothing controversial about that executive order. And I give a little bit of background that um, historian Ralph Clark Chandler, and I give a link to one of his articles, really describes the the period under the articles as a governmental nightmare. And I gave examples of, you know, the trade restrictions that one state is imposing on another. And it's not just Chandler who says this, but John Jay, uh, and I read you earlier about how Washington, or maybe, maybe I didn't write you it yet, but even Washington had pointed out, got back to 1784. Uh, so let me give you some examples. Washington, so years earlier, had described how, how the situation was uh, very chaotic. Here it is. I give a link to a letter that Washington wrote in 1784 to Virginia Governor Benjamin Harrison, and that's from January of 1784, expressing his concern of the consequences that were going to result with this very weak federal government under the Articles of Confederation. Here's the quote. So he's concerned about a half-starved, comma, limping government that appears to be always moving upon crutches and clattering at every step. So here Washington's being quite literary when he's referring to the government under the articles of half-starved, limping, on crutches, and tottering. So here's another example I'm going to give you of John Jay, who was the Secretary of of State, also expressing his concerns prior to the Constitution being adopted. So this is what what Jay indicates in a letter in 1786, and I give you the link. John Jay warns of the dire consequences. This is a letter he writes to Washington. I'm not going to read it all, but, uh, you know, he says, our affairs seem to lead to some crisis, some revolution, something I cannot foresee or conjecture. I'm uneasy and apprehensive, more so than during the war. So feel free to everybody go you know, read some of these letters. But uh, 1786, so a year before the Constitution is written, John Jay thinks that things uh, in terms of crises are almost worse than during the Revolutionary War. So that gives you some idea of how chaotic things became under the very weak period under the Articles of Confederation. 
So at the time, Jay was documenting the failures of the different individual states to comply with their treaty obligations. We'd made a treaty with England after the war. That was the Treaty of Paris. And remember, lots of these treaties are all called the Treaty of Paris. So the, the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War imposed obligation, and the states aren't complying with those treaty obligations. So that was one of the things that was upsetting John Jay. So again, Washington becomes president, and the first executive order is to ask the different agencies or different bureaus or departments to report to him and give him what he needs to know. So that's not controversial. The second executive order uh, is something that's very popular, and this is by no means as controversial. Uh, so we celebrate this every day in November, uh, at the end of November, November 26th. So Washington's executive, second executive order is a lot more famous, and it was more of a proclamation than an executive order. So what was this proclamation? And it was a proclamation that he issued on October 3rd, 1789, calling for a national day of Thanksgiving. And that was what set Thanksgiving in motion. Well, uh, what did you just, uh, by the way, what did you just do with your microphone that you came in so much clearer all of a sudden? I will hold you closer, Manny. Yeah, I'm going to put you in timeout because you've been sounding terrible up until right now. So excuse the audience because you're now loud and clear. So whatever you're doing, stay exactly how you are. We will not move the phone. Stay in put. All right, so we're talking about the day of Thanksgiving that Washington recognized in 1789, his second executive order. And his proclamation, the way he did it, he distributed it to the different state governors with the request. So Washington's very polite. He's not forcing anyone to do anything, but a request that the governors announce and observe this day, November 26th, uh, as a day of observance with their respective states. And Washington, that that day of Thanksgiving, marched to attend services at St. Paul's Cathedral, which is still in New York. I've been in St. Paul's Cathedral, very famous church in lower Manhattan. And uh, you can actually see the booth where Washington would sit. So he wasn't a New Yorker, but when he was in New York during the period where New York was briefly the capital of the first Congress, you can see where he attended church at St. Paul's Chapel. Recognizing that he was a national symbol, Washington donated beer and food to imprisoned debtors in New York. So he's also showing that, hey, this is what I want people to do. And he symbolically did that himself. He put his money where his mouth was. So uh, that's just humorous, I would say, that he's giving beer and food to That's the where Obama got it from. I get it. I get it. Obama, yeah. And, and back then, you know, water wasn't always clean, so drinking beer could be healthier. Uh, so he's doing that. And back then, you could be imprisoned for death. So he's donating money and food or beer and food to those that were imprisoned. And then we've got a link if anyone wants to read the full Thanksgiving proclamation. So that's his second proclamation. And as I pointed out earlier, back in its day, um, you know, this wasn't called an executive order. It's more of a modern term that started during the Lincoln. I'm sorry, yeah, during the Lincoln administration that we refer to things as executive orders. So uh, let me give you some of the other executive actions or executive orders that Washington did. He did a total of eight during his eight years. So he was averaging one per year. So he was president for two terms, so that's eight years. And he actually had eight executive orders, or what we're loosely describing as executive orders. So on August 26, 1790. He does an executive order, and this is, I think, a very good thing, which people don't give him credit for. But um, many of the, you know, the the, the areas uh, where we had treaties with the Native Americans were not being complied with by citizens who were moving west and and the taking land and attacking Native Americans. 
So on August 26th, he does a directive ordering compliance. He's not being polite anymore. He's ordering compliance with our treaty obligations. So Washington explains that it had become necessary to warn American citizens of these treaty violations, that we had made treaties with the Cherokee, the Choctaw, and the Chickasaw, Chickasaw tribes. And the proclamation commands, this is a quote, all officers of the United States, so military and civilian officers, and, I'll quote, all other citizens and inhabitants thereof, so this applies to everybody, all citizens and inhabitants of the United States, to govern themselves according to the treaties and act aforesaid, and they will, be answer, they will answer to the contrary at their peril. So that's pretty forceful language. Washington's saying we have got treaty obligations with our American neighbors or Native American neighbors, abide by these treaties or suffer the consequences. Problem was that back then the federal government didn't have the, uh, really the resources to, to honor the treaties, uh, to enforce. There weren't really teeth, and people weren't listening. All right, so what other executive orders does Washington do? In 1791, a year later, he issues proclamations relating to the District of Columbia, and he took a very active interest in that. We took, uh, talked about that in other nights on the, the future location, which wouldn't happen until 1800, because it took about 10 years to build out the, you know, the capital in Washington, D.C., which we always joke used to be a swamp. So 1791, he does an executive order or a proclamation involving a survey of the boundaries of what would be the District of Columbia, and later he does an executive order defining those boundaries. So that was in the 1791 time frame. So, so, so we can take uh, into account, as Biden considers turning it into a state, would that mean that we'd have to build a new Washington, D.C. to create a, a, an autonomous zone capital? That's a so, good thing. Let's do that another night. Ah, we, we, we can debate Come about, on! I, I happen to think 50 is a good number. On the other hand, there are more people since you brought it up who live. The population of Washington, D.C. is larger than the population of at least one or two western states. Who cares? Why would that be? It has to be an autonomous zone. It can't take sides on matters. It It can't be part of constitutional amendments. It can't be anything. It can't have an opinion about national politics. Well, it, let's let's do that another night, and then we can look at the Constitution. I think we need an executive order of statutes and stories and a declaration that has to be sent from this station as a formal administrative uh, proclamation to the present president of the United States. And you have to write it, and I'll sign it. So let's do that show another night. That's an but you have to do it in a felt pen, okay? I, you know, I have to sign it in a felt pen, too, by the way. All right, so I have a, an interesting response to you. So. <laughs> You're right to pick up on how 1791, Washington did an executive order and a proclamation relating to the District of Columbia. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to stay neutral, Manny. So the following year or two years later, 1793, was one of his most, one of his most uh, controversial executive orders. So believe it or not, here's a controversial executive order from Washington in 1793, which was the Neutrality Proclamation. So what's going on? You had these European wars breaking out because of the French Revolution and the different countries in Europe that are worried about the French Revolution pouring over into their borders into uh, you know, these other monarchies and you know, this revolution spreading. Uh, you know, wound up having, you having uh, there are different names for it, but basically you had these uh, you know, bitter battles in Europe between the, the French and their, their allies, and there weren't that many allies, but the French did well. Uh, on the battlefield, for reasons we've talked about in other nights, versus the, the older aristocratic monarchies in Europe teamed up to go after France. So what is, and you know, people who've seen the Hamilton musical know that there were, there were bitter divisions within America 
Do we support the French because the French were our allies during the Revolutionary War? Or do we support the, uh, the Austrians and the other dynasties in Europe and the British monarchy who are fighting France? So that was a big controversy in Washington and Hamilton say, let's stay out of it. You know, we're still recovering from our issues. And that was the neutrality proclamation was basically an executive order by Washington on April 22nd, 1793. We've got a link there. People can read it for themselves. And I, I also quote from it. But Washington is saying that uh, he's ordering that everybody be, quote, friendly and impartial towards these belligerent powers. And uh, the, the executive order is a little bit more detailed. It describes how whereas it appears a state of war exists between Austria, Prussia, Sardinia, Great Britain, the United Netherlands of one part and France on the other. So he describes the background of what's going on in Europe. And he says it would be therefore fit by these present, presents uh, to declare the position of the United States. And he basically says that we're going to stay out of it. I, hear, I do hereby also make known that whomever of the citizens of the United States shall render himself liable to punishment or forfeiture under the laws of nations by committing, aiding, or abetting hostilities. So he, he comes off pretty strong that stay out of it or uh, there are going to be consequences if you get involved with, uh, with this war. And I will point out, as I said earlier, that it was controversial. James Madison, by the way. No, and quite example. frankly, it was brilliant because it, it, it was the first statement that, that the states no longer have a foreign policy. That's right. And Jefferson was the Secretary of State. He stayed quiet. But Madison, who was one of the leaders in Congress, was not happy. And he thought this was an overreach by the executive because he's not going to Congress. Washington does this on his own. There was no congressional action. He thought this infringed, this is Madison, infringed Congress's power to decide issues of war and peace. But the next year, Congress does adopt the Neutrality Act of 1794, which ratifies the Neutrality Proclamation and gives Washington the authority to prosecute violators. So Congress agreed with Washington. And later tonight, if we have time, we're going to talk about a very famous Supreme Court decision dealing with executive power and what are the limits on executive orders, because they can be very controversial. And uh, I'm pointing out, and we talk about it, we've got a nice picture of, uh, of what's coming up. But Washington, um, this demonstrates how Congress doesn't always agree with executive orders. And this is all about checks and balances. If Congress doesn't like it, that's their job to check the president if they can. So what about uh, the rest of Washington's presidency? And here's another controversial executive order. If you were in western Pennsylvania, it was controversial. Most Americans did not find it controversial. But what wound up happening in August of 1794, you had the Whiskey Rebellion. So remember how earlier during the Articles period, you had Shays Rebellion, which was in western Massachusetts. Now you have after some taxes were imposed by the new federal government, you had the Whiskey Rebellion. They were rebelling against the tax on whiskey, which is one of Hamilton's taxes. And, you know, these are the farmers in the western part of the, of the different states, and, and here it's in western Pennsylvania. And whiskey was, in a, in a way, it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't money, but it was used as money, and the western Pennsylvania farmers did not like these whiskey taxes. So what does Washington do on August? In August of 1794, he does a proclamation slash executive order ordering these people to, quote, disperse and retire peaceably because they were, uh, you know, the citizens of western Pennsylvania. In many cases, were rounding up and tar and feathering, the, which can be dangerous, the, uh, the, the customs collectors or the whiskey collectors, the tax enforcers, and, uh, you know, burning things, etc. because it was a revolt. So he orders them to disperse and retire peaceably. When they fail to do so in September, he does another executive order, which was a proclamation authorizing military intervention. And back then, you didn't have much of a federal uh, military, but he summons into service the militias. When Washington comes after you, he's going to come hard. 
He summons into service the militias of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. Virginia was the largest state. And also the militia of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. And he personally leads that military force to quell that insurrection. We've talked about the Northern Knights. What happens when Washington comes marching with Hamilton and with these militias from four states? What happens to the Whiskey Rebellion, Manny? I don't really, I don't really uh, understand. Uh, <clears throat> I don't really understand the outcome between the result of the Whiskey Rebellion and it, and why it's affected by an executive order. That I never understood. All right. So you have these folks in Western Pennsylvania who don't want to listen to federal law. They don't want to pay their taxes. And Washington that still applies the- today. By the way, there's a massive Whiskey Rebellion going on. Right. There are ways, if you're a protester, to express your views politically, but you can't, you know, seize up and, uh, you know, imprison the tax collectors, and you can't burn down the government offices, right? That's, and then we can talk about that at another time. But long story short, Washington realizes this is an this is an effort to undermine the federal government. You can't allow, you know, protesters or a rebellion within your own country. So he rounds up large numbers of troops from these different state militias. He marches. He leads the troops into western Pennsylvania. And the answer to the question is, uh, and he wants ma- a massive show of force because he doesn't want to have to fight. And uh, once everyone sees this army marching or these militias marching with Washington, and I've got a picture, a very famous picture on his white horse marching up to, over to the Kentucky or sorry to the Pennsylvania mountains, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion ends because they don't want to resist Washington because he's got such a big show, show of force. So he arrests a few people uh, for this insurrection, and then he later pardons them. So the Whiskey Rebellion dissipates, and it's no more because he demonstrates that you know we are under a new system now. You have to follow the law. This is our new federal government. So that's the end of the Whiskey Rebellion, and uh, I've got a link if you want to read more about the Whiskey Rebellion because we did that on another night. So those were Washington's executive orders, and there were eight of them. So let's answer the question. What is the basis for an executive order? And I always like to point out, as do other constitutional uh, folks and historians, that you know it's good to look at what Washington and the early presidents were doing because, and the early Congress, because these are the guys, and I don't say guys and gals, but these are the folks who wrote the Constitution. So if they thought it was legal, then in a way it was constitutional, according to the framers who wrote the Constitution. Who better than Washington, who was the president of the Constitutional Convention, to say what's constitutional. And he was very careful. He was worried about making precedent that would be a bad, you know, historical uh, repercussions. So what is the constitutional basis for executive orders? Because an executive order is not a law written by Congress, by elected officials. It's a decision by a chief executive of, uh, you know, acting alone uh, without congressional uh, legislation. So what is the authority? And the answer is, you can look in a couple places, and the word executive order is not in the Constitution. You can spend all day long looking in the Constitution. You will not find the word executive order. This is what you will find. In Article you 2, know what, everybody you know remembers. All, you know what also is uh, not in the dictionary? is, uh, <laughs> I mean, not just at a coincidence, is statist. Statum is statism, but not statist. I thought that was odd. Of course, uh, maybe we should put it in the Constitution. But that beside the point, I just thought I'd say that. Okay, go ahead. So at a, at a future time, we can talk about other words and other phrases. Oh, come on, so, stop stop passing the buck, okay, you know? So Jeez. there are seven articles in the Constitution. Article 1, which is the largest, is the Congress. Article 2 is the executive, which is the president. So Article 2 has a provision. It's the Take Care Clause. And the Take Care Clause says, and this is a good source of the president's authority, that the president shall, quote, 
take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So that is a basis, most historians and, and scholars say, for executive orders, because the president has to take care that the law is faithfully executed. How do you do that? You can do it with executive orders. Also, Article 2, same place, which is the president, you know, the executive branch, Article 2, has the vesting clause. And this is a very broad provision, and we can debate what it means, but Article 2, Section 1, so the beginning of Article 2 says that the executive power shall be vested in a president. So the executive power vested in a president, whatever executive power means, and we can debate that, but because the president has that power, then how can he use it? Executive orders. So those are some examples of what the Constitution says. I also like to point out that he's the commander-in-chief, right? So implied from being commander-in-chief, you can use the military as long as you're not violating other laws. You can command them, which is what he was doing against the Whiskey Rebellion. And then Article 2, Section 2 deals with, and I'll read it to you, it permits the president to require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their offices. And that was basically what Washington was doing with the first executive order we talked about from June of 1789, asking the folks who worked for him to help him or give him their reports or give them their opinions in writing, etc. So that's also an authority or an express power in Article 2 of the Constitution. So critics will say who don't like executive orders, and usually it's the people from one party right, who don't like what the president of another party is doing, but you generally like what your president from your party is doing. So critics have labeled executive orders, quote, legislation by other means, and that's partially true. It's not legislation, but it accomplishes things that legislation could do. And supporters, of course, defend it as a necessary tool, particularly in the face of congressional intransigence. And we could give examples if we want, how a president wants to do something and Congress won't move, so they accomplish it in a circuitous way or sometimes in a direct way with an executive order. And that can get into a conversation about how different branches can push back and forth on each other. So among other reasons, executive orders can be controversial because they're not legislation and they're not adopted under Article One, which is Congress doing laws. And Article One has a bicameralism requirement that has to go through the House and the Senate and a presentment requirement that a law has to be presented to the president to be signed. Right. And as much as executive power is vested in the president, what does Article One, Section One say when it comes to Congress? So those who don't like executive power or strong executive actions will point to Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution, which says all legislative power – here I'm going to quote – all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in Congress, which shall consist of a Senate and the House. So if the president has executive power and Congress has legislative power, the argument is that Congress is violating or stepping into or breaching into – bleeding over into congressional authority by trying to do something which is basically similar to a law. So that's the debate. Which, right, uh, and you're, probably, the, that will be playing itself out shortly in modern times. And that happens every four years, particularly when there's a new, a new president. Right, so let's talk about presidential statistics, and I give some of the statistics on the website. So, And you mentioned it at the beginning, that the president, which it really isn't surprising, the president who served when he died during the fourth term, but the only president to do more than four terms was the president that had the most executive orders, and I give the number. Uh, you, you want to read it out? It's one of the bullets under presidential statistics, Manny. No, I don't have it in, in front of me on the uh, in here in the studio. Okay, it's an extraordinary number. So Roosevelt, and I'm not going to apologize for him, but he had a lot going on. He had the Great Depression. And he also had World War II. So he averaged about 300 executive. Think about that: 300 executive orders per year. That's almost one a day. And he did a total of 3,728 during his four terms 
and he died during the fourth term. But he is the executive order king, FDR. Whenever anyone complains about Obama or Trump or recent presidents, Roosevelt was the king of executive orders. Yeah, man, over a thousand, man, unbelievable. Three thousand seven hundred twenty-eight. The one president who didn't do any, and this is a little. Well, that's because he had pneumonia, right? (laughs) That's right. So William Henry Harrison died after about thirty days. He died of pneumonia. And he was the only president not to issue an executive order, but he probably would have. He just died before he had a chance. So there are three presidents who only did one, uh, and these are good examples of there were presidents who did very few. So John Adams, James Madison, and John Monroe. And Madison and Adams knew very, you know, these are scholars, and, you know, Adams didn't write the Constitution, but he gave a lot of input into the Constitution. And Madison was the father of the Constitution. So it just goes to show that some presidents don't like using them. So Adams, Madison, and Monroe used the fewest number of only one during a completed term. And the counterargument here is that Madison didn't have much controversy. Monroe, this is the era of good feelings where Congress and the president got along very well. So if a president has Congress to listen to and follow and adopt laws that the president wants, then he doesn't need to do executive or she doesn't need to do executive orders. So long story short, those were examples where you didn't have many or any, uh, just one per year or one at all from Adams, Madison, and Monroe. So let's now talk about Grant. So Grant was one of my favorite presidents after the Civil War. He issued more than 100 executive orders. He was the first to do more than 100. And in 1873, he did an executive order about executive orders, setting forth rules and guidelines for how executive orders should work. And that's the conversation we can have later, how you know a president can just replace executive orders from other presidents, which you, you now see in the uh, you know this time period, in, in our time period today, where uh, Biden replaces the ones from Trump and Trump replaced the ones from Obama. So Grant had issued an executive order for executive order, setting forth what he thought would be a good procedure. And today, executive orders are reviewed by the Office of Management and Budget to give a cost, if any. And the attorney general is supposed to review them before they're signed by the president. And also, they're printed in what's referred to as the Federal Register. And uh, that began in 1836 with the Federal Register Act to try to formalize the process of how federal legislation or federal, not legislation, but regulations get written so people can follow what the federal government is up to. That's the Federal Register, which is a federal publication. And then Roosevelt, as we said, was the first president to issue more than 1,000, and he did 3,728. And we'll talk about some examples of good ones and bad ones. And then some people might ask the question, when did we start numbering them? And the answer is it wasn't until 1907 that the State Department began retroactively numbering executive orders back to the Lincoln administration. So executive order number one was one of Lincoln's executive orders from 1862. But when they number them, according to the State Department, they're not numbering if you go executive order number one it's not the washington one we talked about it's the lincoln one from 1862 and to date as we said there have almost been 14,000 executive orders over 13,700 and every day you can check because people keep track of these things including on the federal register and i give a link to the american presidency project which also has a running list of executive orders with links and you can read all about them so let's now talk about some good executive orders, which I think most people will universally acknowledge have been very important. And this is where we get into uh, February is Black History Month. So Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, which would take effect on January 1st, 1863, was an executive order. So without that ability to do executive orders, um, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation couldn't have happened. Uh, so that was a very useful executive order. 
And I, I think another very important executive order is the Manhattan Project during World War II. You want to tell us, many what is the Manhattan Project? That's uh, it was a uh, I guess it was like a research uh, executive order uh, for a research to basically make the bomb, the, ato- exactly. the atomic bomb. That's right. So the and we can go into more detail later because I've got some interesting information about how that worked. But Executive Order 8807 in 1941 established the OSRD which is the Office of Scientific Research and Development, which had a large amount of resources given by Roosevelt to come up with all kinds of inventions. And I'll give examples later, but the biggest example was the Manhattan Project, which was building the bomb to end World War II, and that ended it in the Pacific. And you know, that's a, maybe the use of the bomb was controversial, but building the bomb hopefully was not too controversial uh, because we're trying to put an end to uh, the World War II and save American soldiers. So. What are some other executive orders? This is another one which is, I think, very useful, very important. And this is Truman. Desegregation of the military in 1948. Truman did that with an executive order. That was Executive Order 9981, so we've got the numbers for them. And it said and it declared, this is a quote, to be the policy, according to Truman, the policy of the president that there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. And God bless them. During the Korean War, if you're fighting and possibly going to get killed defending your country, he didn't want discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin. And after that executive order, Strom Thurmond and Dixiecrats left the Democratic Party, and uh, they were very upset about uh, what Truman was doing, desegregating the military. And there are other reasons, too, that uh, you had these Dixiecrats leave the Democratic Party. Uh, So that's President Truman in 1948 during the Korean War. Eisenhower uses an executive order. That's Executive Order 10,730 to integrate, uh, this is famously, the Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. And there were nine students who were after the Supreme Court decision in uh, Brown versus Board of Education. So Arkansas didn't want to listen. Governor August Fauble, I think was his name. That's where the, the, the young girls were killed, correct? So there were explosions in Atlanta uh, that was later during the civil rights movement. But in Arkansas, you had the governor who was a racist preventing these nine students from going to an all-white high school because the courts were ordering that the the school should open up and allow these students to go. And the governor of Arkansas was saying, no, you can't. And he had the the state National Guard preventing these nine girls, and I don't know if it was all girls, but these these, these children, the Little Rock Nine, from going to the Central High School. And he's using the, and there are pictures of the, 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 the militia or the, the, the National Guard of Arkansas lined up around the high school preventing these nine kids from going to high school in, in an all-white high school. What does Eisenhower do? Eisenhower, he sends in, don't mess with Eisenhower, the 101st Airborne. And he also nationalizes the National Guard of Arkansas. He says, they don't work for you anymore, Governor. They work for me. He nationalizes the National Guard in Arkansas. He sends in the 101st Airborne. They didn't parachute, but he sends them in. And the Little Rock Nine got to go to high school you know, under police and military escort at the Central High School in Arkansas. So that was an executive order, Executive Order 10730. And I actually put a picture of it so people can read it and go to the link. And that's an example of how executive orders can be used very effectively Sometimes when you need to get things done quickly and you don't want to wait for Congress. Or John F. Kennedy's worst executive order in the history of the United States presidency, Executive Order 10988 was an executive order allowing federal employees collective bargaining rights and the path to federal deficits 
commenced because of John F. Kennedy. Thought I put that out there. You named a great. You. So it's it's in the eye of the beholder. If you're a union advocate, then you're going to disagree with 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 Manny. Um, No way should uh, federal employees be allowed to strike and have bargaining rights against taxpayers because they're taxpayers themselves. And uh, FDR agreed with me. Lo and behold, it's executive order. I think I said it correctly. One zero nine eighty eight details at thefiscals.com, which I believe you read. You read my theories in my book. And yes, uh, one of these days I encourage people to read Manny's book, and it will open your eyes. So, <laughs> yeah, and he's and just that, so brown nosing. It's not even funny, man. God, you're know, not even sincere. I, I think people will enjoy, and you can also online. They can read you know, lots of excerpts from the book. So All right, go ahead. Order. Make my day. Another executive order I have a link to is President Kennedy's Peace Corps was established by Executive Order ten nine twenty four. And I went to school in Michigan, the University of Michigan, and he announced the creation of the Peace Corps at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. That was in 1961, and there's a plaque where he gave that speech. So, you know, the executive orders are used for all different purposes. Now, is the Peace Corps still active? I mean, are there still people doing Peace Corps? Oh, yeah. Peace Corps is still up and active, and I don't know if they're doing as much now because of COVID. But uh, you know, it's particularly in developing nations, and I, I think modern presidents have said, let's use the Peace Corps in some of the locations in America where we need them. So Peace Corps doesn't just go overseas. They can also go uh, domestically in America. Yeah, so, they could, we could use the Peace Corps right now for uh, the tremendous amount of uh, um, starvation in, in the United States. There's people starving out there, man. No work. Uh, no. You, you could— yeah. Send a request to, to Biden to do an executive order to use the Peace Corps in uh, South Florida. Well, so, f- you know, uh, write the document and felt tip pen and I'll sign it. There you go. All right. So let's now talk about some executive orders which are highly controversial. And, uh, you know, these I think we'll all agree, at least some of them were a very bad idea. And we can debate these at other other evenings. But um, Let's see. So President Lincoln suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War, 1861. And the backdrop is Washington, D.C. is very close on borders on Maryland. Maryland was not a did not join the Confederacy. It was referred to as a border state. But Maryland was a slave state. And there were a lot of people in Maryland who didn't support the the Union. They were sympathizers of the South. And because there are concerns about Washington, D.C. being taken over in revolts and, and riots in Maryland, um, you know, Lincoln, uh, you know, was a serious guy, and he suspended habeas corpus in 1861 with an executive order. And here I promised we would talk a little bit about sports. So do you want to tell us what the three races are that make up the Triple Crown, Manny? Uh, the the Preakness, Kentucky Derby, and the— uh, New York, the Belmont? Oh, the Belmont, yes. All right. So just to give you an example of how unpopular when Lincoln did this, there was a song that was written— in this in Maryland, because that's where the Preakness is, and that song has lyrics that I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to read them. But the name of the song is "Maryland, My Maryland," and uh, I'll read you a couple of lyrics. The despot's heel is on thy shore, Maryland! Exclamation mark. His torch at the temple door, Maryland. Avenge the patriotic gore, the flecked that flecked the streets of Baltimore, and the battle queen of yore, Maryland, my Maryland. So this song, which is sung or played at the Preakness every year is referring to Lincoln as the despot's heel on their shore. So that's when that song was written uh, in opposition to Lincoln and suspending habeas corpus. So 
uh, I can give you more details about uh, what was going on, but you can just imagine when uh, there was concern. And, and yeah, I, I think it was over, you know, draft dodging, right? People not wanting to go to war. And also, some of the sympathizers were rioting, and um, let's see, Fort McHenry, which is near or in Baltimore. Uh, so he opened, he had, Lincoln open, uh, ordered the um, uh, open firing on a strike. I think it was in New York, not Maryland. All right, so that may have been, uh, and I have to remember. A lot of people died in that in that strike. Union Union Square in Manhattan, there were right. there were there were draft riots. Right. So to put down the draft riots, and you can't if you're forcing people to be drafted, some of them don't want to be drafted. But uh, but the point is that in Maryland there were riots, and uh, you know President Lincoln needed to get things under control if he wants to win the war, and you can't have the area very close to your capital up in arms, uh, tearing up railroad tracks and wreaking havoc. So if if you were uh, you know opposing the war and, and opposing what needed to be done, he had you arrested. And with habeas corpus, we have to talk about what is habeas corpus. Anyone under the Constitution has the right, if you're arrested, uh, to demand to be presented before a judge and have the judge agree with whether or not there's order, there's uh, evidence to hold you. And when habeas corpus is suspended, then the military can round you up and then arrest you and don't have to present you immediately to a judge. And that's what Lincoln allowed, but this was under the circumstances of the Civil War. So some have disagreed with Lincoln suspending habeas corpus, which is a bedrock principle of, uh, you know, if you want to call it Anglo-American jurisprudence. But, you know, in, in his defense, Lincoln was doing what he had to do to save the Union. And, uh, you know, on another night, we'll go into more detail, and I think I may have a link, how the, the, the suspension of habeas corpus was actually challenged and went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do this. And Lincoln didn't care what the Supreme Court said. So there's a little bit of a resistance by the chief justice at the time, Tanny. Uh, so we'll talk about that later. But Lincoln wanted to win the war and was worried that if things get out of hand, uh, you know, what's the point? If, if you're letting the South do what they want. So that's an example of a controversial executive order. Another example of what I would agree was a horrible executive order was FDR. So this is President Roosevelt during World War II. And the famous executive order is Executive Order 9066, 9066, and I've got a link, which resulted in the internment of approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans during World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He signs that on February 19th. And I, I learned not too long ago that one of my favorite crew members from Star Wars, I'm sorry, Star Wars, from Star Trek, uh, so Lieutenant Sulu, was grew up, basically, in a Japanese internment camp. And let me give you some examples. So uh, one of the most famous camps, which was the largest camp, if I'm not mistaken, was in California. And this is called Man, Manzanar in California. Over 10,000 people lived behind barbed wire. And, and even children who were adopted by Caucasian parents were still rounded up and sent to these relocation locations. Uh, and there's a famous pictures that were taken by Ansel Adams, the photographer who visited Man Manzanar in 1943. And uh, here I'm going to give credit to one of your favorite presidents, Manny, that in 1988, President Reagan signed what was called the Civil Liberties Act that provided for redress for Japanese Americans who were rounded up because of their ancestry. And each of them were paid $20,000 for their forced incarceration, which lasted for years. In many cases, they lost their businesses. They lost their houses. They had to sell things that reduced prices. And then 1989, after Reagan, President Bush, the first Bush, issues a formal apology apologizing for the Japanese internment during a 1942 timeframe by Roosevelt. 
And I'll give you another executive order, which is controversial, and this can lead to a nice discussion about how you resist an executive order. But Truman, a very controversial executive order, Executive Order 10-340, and I give a link, during the Korean War, places – so he did a good executive order to desegregate the military, but he also does an executive order because they were uh, union strikes at the steel mills during the Korean War. And he says, nope, we're going to send in the military and prevent the striking. And that goes to the Supreme Court and leads to a very famous decision, the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer case. So let's see how we're doing on time. And the answer is, let me talk briefly about this case, of the Youngstown case. Because some of you might be saying, well, if I don't like an executive order, what's to prevent the president from just running roughshod over our constitutional rights with executive orders? So this is the issue that's presented in the Youngstown Sheet case and or the Youngstown Steel case. So the, the quick answer is that it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and there were multiple decisions by different justices writing separate opinions, because not all, all the time do the judges all agree to the same opinion. So they agreed on the same outcome, but they got there different ways. And the concurrence by Justice Jackson is generally referred to be and understood to be the most important test of presidential power, and this decision came down in 1952. So it took several years. By then, you know, the controversy is over, but the Supreme Court issues several opinions, and this is Justice Jackson's test. And it's interesting to walk through it. So what does Justice Jackson say? And presidential scholars will look at this opinion. So That was a sad day in American history. It led to the trail of uh, tears, correct? So that was President Jackson in the 1830s. This is just, sorry, Justice Jackson uh, in oh. 1952. Okay. But you're right. I, I don't like the fact that uh, President Jackson, uh, he didn't use an exact. Actually, good question. I'll, I'll check and see whether or not they were executive Yeah, that's why I got confused, too. Yeah, that, that's something I'm going to look into, whether or not Jackson used executive, President Jackson used executive orders. I, I think he may have been just using a law which allowed him to do it, which is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about the justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Jackson, and this three-part test. So there are three different buckets when you're looking at what is the president's power. And this came into play, by the way, when Trump was um, trying to build the wall and taking money from other purposes to build the wall, relocating money from defense appropriations to build a a war, uh, sorry, a, wa- a wall where the Congress hadn't authorized it. So that was also brought to the courts, and Trump won that, that lawsuit. But the, the test that was used is the Justice Jackson concurrence test of presidential power. So what are the three parts of the test, the three buckets of power? So the first way of looking at it, part one, if you will, is if the president is acting according to an express or an implied authorization, he's at his or she is at their maximum power. So if Congress has said, yes, you can do this, then the president has the authority, or if there's a constitutional provision that gives them the authority, you know, there's there's very very little limit if the president is using an express power given by Congress because it was delegated or specifically mentioned in the Constitution. So if you look at a range of presidential powers, which is what this is, this is when the president is strongest, when it's acting under an express power or a delegated power from from Congress. That's when the president is at his strongest, or the widest latitude would be given by the courts. And that would be the biggest burden for someone who's opposing the president when the president's using express, again, presidential powers under the Constitution under Article 2 or delegated powers under Article 1. So what's the next part of the test? So when is the president not as strong? And this would be number two, when the president acts in the absence of congressional power or when he doesn't have or she doesn't have independent powers. 
So, and so this comes up when there's congressional inertia. So this might be an example of Barring Obama when he does the uh, the executive order having to do with um, what's the name of the program to allow children of, of uh, who were uh, you know who don't have green cards a DACA 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 right so to allow DACA kids uh, to work and to stay in America not to be deported because it's no fault of their own that their parents snuck in right so DACA was an executive order where. Obama and I'll avoid the politics, but Obama wanted to do something. Congress was, you know, not acting. Uh, Congress was log jammed and not getting anything done, so he does an executive order. So here, it's not because Congress is telling him to do it, but he's acting in the face of congressional inertia. We could debate about does he have the authority to do it or not. So it's not expressed that he has the ability to do it. So that's number two under the Justice Jackson test. So what is you know, the third part or the third bucket of presidential authority, this would be when the president is the weakest under the third prong or the third part of the test. This is where the president is taking measures incompatible with expressed or implied powers or will of Congress. This is when the president's authority is at its lowest. Congress has passed a law saying you can't do something, and the president tries to do it anyway. So that's the third phase, if you will, of, of the test. Uh, so, And we can give examples uh, at another night of, of when the third part of that test has been employed. So the strongest part of the test, the president is strongest when, when he's acting or she is acting under express authority from Congress or the Constitution. And the exact opposite, the, op the opposite extreme is when Congress has said, don't do it. And the president's trying to do it anyway. So that's the Justice Jackson test of presidential authority. And I think we have reached the uh, the top of the hour, basically. This so is it. Some other... This is well, it. But more... Go ahead. Continue. You got three yeah. minutes. All right. Got three minutes. All right. So let's talk about other executive orders. So President G.W. Bush, George G.W. Bush, uh, I forgot what, uh, W., right? So in 2001, he does a very controversial executive order, but uh, it's 2001. So what had just happened in 2001? The Hanging Chads or September 11th? September 11th, right? right. So after the attack of uh, September 11th on the Pentagon and the attack on the Twin Towers, the attack on uh, – there was also another plane that maybe was going to hit the White House. So after the attack of 9-11, what does GW do? He does an executive order. He does several executive orders, but one of which combines – 40 federal law enforcement officers or agencies into a cabinet-level Department of Homeland Security. So that's not controversial. But he does another executive order, which is warrantless searches. It was done by an executive order, and then later Congress passed laws putting some limitations on that. But uh, you know, what President and then soon after the uh, how many uh, was it a full year after when the Patriot Act was signed into law? That's a good question. So I'd have to check the timing. Yeah, but, uh, that was yeah. like a year later. It, it, what uh, one of the biggest issues I have with that executive order that it may null and void low uh, small government low taxes mantra of the of the Republican Party it just went out the window because with that executive order he created the largest federal department in the history of the United States the, home, the Department of Homeland Security it's completely undermined the Republican mantra from that point on. I have a serious problem with it because I don't. It was done so inefficiently in the beginning that it'll never be reformed. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security by executive order is a mammoth federal department, combining all the law enforcement agencies stepping all over each other and just spending taxpayers' money erroneously. The concern was that if you had too many departments, I think the term they use for it is uh, funnels or um, like smokestacks, right? If they're each 
acting on their own and they're not coordinating. And that was the idea is to, to combine them together. So that way they act together and you, you, know, you, 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 you act on intelligence. It doesn't, uh, you don't have agencies fighting with each other, separate agencies. Or hiding information under. because each one wants to make the arrest. Ah, ridiculous. Well, so, that'll, but that pretty much ends the show. Now you're at eight o'clock. So you want right, to sign up? So let me give you some of the numbers. So how many executive orders did Trump do? And the answer is 220. How many executive orders did Obama do? 276. And I've got links if people want to see the, the tallies as they get uh, as they increase and then the, do the history and look at the, the research. And then uh, Biden so far has done about 25 when I last checked. So that is the history of executive orders. It's always a pleasure talking to everybody. And feel free to check out these materials on statutesandstories.com. Take care, my friends. This is WSQF Blink Radio. Back to rock and roll programming. Bye-bye.